0: Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com.
1: Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, Market Fox columnist at i3, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Tadas Viscanta. He is the director of investor education at Ritholtz Wealth Management, but you may know him as the founder and editor of Abnormal Returns, an extremely popular investment blog that's been running since 2005 and proudly forecast free. Today, we're going to find out a bit about Tadas and how he got started in the industry, how he started the blog, and what's happening in terms of finance and investing and social media. Tadas, welcome to the podcast.
2: Daniel, it's a pleasure to be on. I'm uh, especially pleased because you've had uh, such illustrious guests on prior to me. So I, I, don't, know, uh, I don't know if I merit um, their level, but I'm certainly happy to be on.
1: Well, a part of the philosophy of the podcast is to tell interesting stories from all parts of the finance and investment world. So we try to mix it up a lot. We've had self-made billionaires. Today we have a blogger and social media personality. At other times we've had academics, quants, fundamental investors. We've got some episodes coming up with ESG investors We've got a real estate agent, so we really try to keep things uh, keep a variety on the podcast.
2: No, that's great. That keeps it keeps it interesting for you and for the guests.
1: So it's customary to find out a little bit about our guests and how they got started in finance. What's your story?
2: Well, I have been in and around finance for essentially my entire career. So, really, since since graduating from university, I've been in and around the financial markets. So, uh, I ha- I feel like it's uh, kind of in my blood, I would say.
1: And what do you think prompted you to to choose this as a vocation and a career?
2: You know, that's that's actually an interesting question. When I was at university, I studied a number of different. Uh, a number of different topics. And one of the interesting things about uh, investing is that it really does cross, um, you know, it's not simply, you know, investing really isn't just finance. It isn't just economics. Uh, It really ranges across a number of different sorts of topics. And you really have to think broadly around the world to be, uh, I think, to think about investing in the proper sort of perspective. So. Uh, So I don't know. I I think probably on some level that was helpful for me to be studying history, political science and economics. Uh, And it just so happened to be that finance was an outlet for my interest in in all of those topics. So uh, I don't know if it was meant to be or happenstance, but uh, I think a broad education was helpful to me in terms of being able to think about the markets from, uh, you know, a little bit of a different perspective.
1: It's funny to hear you say that because uh, through most of my career uh, researching fund managers and meeting many fund managers from around the world, one thing that always stood out to me was that the, the fund managers that I considered to be the best at their jobs were all incredibly curious and they just had these curious minds where they were interested in all sorts of facts and topics and similar to what you said, they almost saw investing as a lens through which to explore the world
2: yeah no i think that's right and i think the one thing about investing which uh i think attracts those people is that you know you're able to you know it's a it's a the structure i think is interesting you're able to generate a hypothesis whatever it might be whether it be about an individual company or about a market and essentially test that hypothesis and i think for a lot of people that process is is an interesting one, and you know uh, it it definitely puts you it puts your not only your capital but it also puts your sort of uh, your intellectual uh, capabilities to the test as well.
1: That's right. There's a very clear method of keeping score and uh, f- getting feedback.
2: No, that's absolutely the case.
1: So you're in college, you've discovered that uh, investing in finance is interesting because it allows you to be very broad. How did you find your first job in the industry, and and where did you start out?
2: Uh, I I started off my career out of undergraduate at um, what is a a now uh, now defunct bank, which is the First National Bank of Chicago, and I shouldn't say uh, I probably shouldn't say defunct because it had been absorbed into a number of different banks, which eventually leads you back to J- to J P Morgan Chase today. So uh, the First National Bank of Chicago was acquired by. Uh, a couple of different companies along the way before becoming uh, a part of the broader J.P. Morgan Chase universe. And so that's where I started my career. And I was in a a program which was probably unique in the sense that it was – it it hired uh, individuals like myself, oftentimes who had liberal arts backgrounds, and provided them uh, a a two-and-a-half-year essentially training program to allow you to – go to different parts of the bank while you were studying for your uh, MBA, either at the University of Chicago or at Northwestern at night. So it was quite a unique opportunity and it provided me a lot of uh, provided me opportunities to look at different parts of the bank. and it just so happened to be that the parts of the bank that were ended up being most interesting to me were ones that were either involved in uh, the capital markets or in investing.
1: Okay, very good. So as a liberal arts major, did you feel somewhat different to most of the people in the bank who I assume would have come from more of an accounting or perhaps even a math background?
2: Uh, I think yes, but I think the people in my program were uh, oftentimes in very much the same boat as me and so oftentimes had had that similar background. And so you, I, I think quite quickly you become... Uh, you get a sense for the organization and how it works. And I think, uh, you know, your job really is to try and uh, fit in and add value wherever you can. So uh, I don't necessarily think that it – I think it's a – you know, I think net-net is a positive more than than a detriment.
1: Okay. Now, I I noticed you threw in there uh, attending the University of Chicago for your MBA, and as our listeners might know, that is the bastion – the fortress of the efficient markets hypothesis uh, how did studying at Chicago shape your thinking about investing
2: you know that's a that's an interesting question I mean I think that um, it was really an opportunity to get a, get an education in areas which I really didn't have a background so things like uh, things like accounting and strategy and I, w- I would have to say that I was probably less focused on um, investing in in the program, I was really looking for looking to fill in areas where I really didn't have a background and so from that perspective uh I thought it was useful in terms of rounding out my skills but no it was very- it was very much the case that you know the University of Chicago, especially at that time, was very much a quantitatively oriented program uh and you know I think the the ethos was very much built into the program and so uh, I don't. Um, so I've I've always taken uh, that quantitative sort of perspective and a need for the ability to be able to test your viewpoints against uh, the data that's out there to be um, a valuable sort of grounding.
1: Okay, that's that's very interesting. So you've you've spent some time at uh, the first. First Bank of Chicago. Was it First Bank of Chicago or First National? Uh, it,
2: was, it was the First National Bank of Chicago. The holding company was called First Chicago Corporation.
1: Okay. So you spent some time at uh, First National Bank of Chicago and at uh, Chicago Booth Business School. Where to from there?
2: Well, I was, I was there for over a decade. And after one of the, uh, after one of the eventual bank mergers, I decided to uh, to go out on my own. And uh, for a while, I was uh, essentially trading my own book.
1: Okay. And uh, securities, derivatives, what were you focused on? Uh,
2: it, lar- largely equities. And at uh, at one point, I ended up uh, co-founding a hedge fund. Um, and out of that experience in founding that hedge fund, I really started to uh begin my deep dive or my interest in writing more about the financial markets for a broader audience.
1: Okay, it sounds like there's a story there. So what what was it about running a hedge fund that turned you into an author?
2: Well, it, the, I'll take one step back in the sense that while I was while while I was in my corporate career, part of my job was to uh, to write research and, uh, along with my boss and a co-author, we ended up co-authoring a number of different, um, research papers on a variety of topics like global asset allocation, country risk, and things like that. And so in my corporate career, I did, I kind of got the beginnings of, um, an interest in writing for a broader audience and found that quite fulfilling. And so after my after my stint at the hedge fund ended, uh, I realized that I had a a, a little bit of um uh, this was still before the time this is still a time when hedge funds were still uh you know somewhat um, somewhat opaque in their operation and so at that point I had a lot of information and a lot of background on uh, founding a hedge fund and I had a, a little bit of a academic interest in hedge fund returns and the research on that. And so I felt like I had at that point I felt like I had a book on hedge funds in me, and so I wrote a book proposal, I wrote a couple of chapters about uh, on that book and tried to get it published, but um, unfortunately, I was unable to get it published at that time, So, uh, and it just so happened to be that around that time, that's when the investment blogosphere was really kind of getting off the ground, so I felt that as a thwarted book author, uh, an outlet for my interest in writing about the financial markets might be the blogosphere, And so that's how I took my my first two steps into uh, writing for an audience online.
1: That's a great story. And another common theme that you reminded me of in that story is that uh, often with many founder-led ideas or enterprises, there's an element of frustration behind the founding of the idea.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because at that time, if the... You know, if it had been easier at that time to self-publish a book, I might have, I might very well have gone on to, you know, write that entire book and self-publish it, and you know, uh, things might have turned out very differently. But uh, you know, at that time, it wasn't as easy or as turnkey it is as it is today with Amazon and all that. So uh, my, uh, so my, like I said, my interests were turned uh, online, where I could get online for uh, essentially for free.
1: Okay, so what was the early days of blogging like when you started out? I'll um provide a little
2: bit of uh, of color on that in the sense that when I first started blogging, I actually uh, I started blogging anonymously um in part because I didn't I had no idea where the blogosphere would go and my fear at that time was that uh if I were to try and get another job in uh, you know in uh institutional investment management that my uh that my um, uh blogging might be a detriment, so uh, I know that might sound ridiculous today, but that was my thinking at the time and so for the first couple of years that I was blogging, I was essentially blogging anonymously and the other thing that's really interesting is that blogging was really um its own thing at that time. social media essentially didn't exist um and nor did Uh, You know, this is essentially before the iPhone before Facebook before Twitter um, Before any of those things and so blogging was really a thing in and of itself and was kind of its own self-contained universe
1: And do you know who was reading the blogs at the time?
2: Oh (laughs) Um well you know it's funny because I, I you know there are a couple of people uh well uh, bloggers were oftentimes reading you know the reading each other that was oftentimes uh, your only audience and so uh, a couple of um uh, a couple of people that I remember who were blogging at that very same time one is um Eddie Elfenbein at Crossing Wall Street and now he is uh, uh the manager of a uh ETF um uh, and you know, another person who's gone on to a uh, great distinction is, um, Joe Weisenthal, who's now at Bloomberg and previously at, Bus- Business and Lighter at Business Insider, and he was blogging at that time as well. Those were a couple of people who were a couple of the first people who linked to my blog uh, at that time. So I was kind of, I'm in- indebted to them um, for recognizing what I was doing at that time. And I'm happy to see that they are still very much um, a part of Uh, have been successful and are still very much a part of the uh, broader investment and financial world.
1: Okay, so you've created the blog. There's this small nascent group of bloggers out there writing about investment-related topics in a world long before social media. How long did it take before people started to really engage with your content? Uh, Were you an overnight success or did it take some time?
2: No, I think, you know, I think like any of this, uh, it takes time. And I would say that, you know, I, I don't know if I'm unique in this aspect, but, you know, abnormal returns has really just been um, a uh, just an upward, uh, it's just kind of been on an upward slope uh, from the beginning. And certainly, Um, you know, it's really just kind of been a slow climb up. And so I don't think there was any point in time where there was some sort of aha moment where there was a big spike in traffic and uh, it became um, that it ever became some sort of uh, big sensation. But uh, I think the uh, the nature of how I blog and the nature of uh, the readership has really just kind of been a steady upward trend. And so, um, you know, uh, I know other people have been much more overnight sensations in, in this uh, field, but uh, mine has been one of just sort of slow, steady progress.
1: Okay, so persistence pays off.
2: Well, yeah, I don't know if it's persistence or stubbornness or stupidity, but uh, I'm not sure which it is, but uh, uh, here I am. So.
1: Okay, so what are some things that you've discovered through trial and error uh, during that this time since 2005 when you started Abnormal Returns?
2: That's a great question. I mean, from my own perspective, you know, I have really, you know, it's interesting that um, a really, a couple of things have really stood um stood the test of time, and so uh like i said i don't know whether that's uh i don't know whether that's good luck or stubbornness, but when I did tag the blog a forecast free investment blog, it was very much a reaction to at least what was going on at the time um in the blogosphere, and it was very much uh, the blogs at that time were very much um an arena for people to put out forecasts and to make Predictions about various sorts of stocks and the economy and the stock market and that to me wasn't particularly interesting um, For any number of reasons one of which was that oftentimes bloggers would make these predictions and then not follow up on The outcomes and so I felt that was kind of a cheat and I thought that that wasn't really um, That didn't serve the readership well and so when I started blogging my interest was a couple of things one was to take a, a little bit of a longer-term um, perspective, and to uh, hopefully provide much more in the way of educational content for the readership, and so uh, that has always been kind of my my thought process there. And I've really always just kind of used um, a, one kind of rule of th- rule of thumb for myself. And if I if I found something interesting, um, I would I would blog about it or link to it, and that was really. Um, really kind of the only standard so I'm sure the things that I thought were interesting five years ago ten years ago um, Are different than the stuff that I find interesting today, and so uh, I guess I'm just gratified that people have kind of um, Either stuck with me along the way or have uh, come on come on board uh, over time
1: So you mentioned the importance of finding content that's interesting and relevant and you're well known for your blog links And I've been pleased to see some of the things that I've written appear there from time to time. Thank you very much for that.
2: You're you're welcome.
1: But uh, how do you find the time to find all this interesting material? How do you organize yourself? Well, you know, uh, I don't know
2: that I've ever organized myself. I have, uh, I really look at, essentially, I I take in information from all sorts of different sources and really just kind of use a framework to, like I said, find, find those things that are uh, hopefully interesting and relevant, and so it does take it does take some time, and that's kind of I was joking earlier about kind of the trajectory of the blog, and when I said you know I don't know that there is a whole lot of competition for what I do, in part because um, I don't like I said I may have been stupid to stick with it as long as I did, so um, it does take a lot of time and it does take um, a lot of effort to comb through. Uh, all of that information. And so uh, it is a bit of a, it has been a sacrifice over time to kind of stick with it. And I think that, you know, um, if nothing else, doing this on a daily basis provides me the opportunity to uh, see the flow of information, see how uh, different sorts of topics evolve over time. And I think that's, that is one of the benefits of doing this on kind of a, uh, on a daily basis. And it's interesting because when I first started blogging, I thought I would be writing um, – oftentimes I thought I'd be writing uh, you know, longer blog posts, book reviews, and things like that. And I quickly realized that there are a lot of other people who are very good, uh, very good writers, and it felt um, redundant to write on topics that they have already covered um, when I could simply link to them and say, go read this. Um, they did a much better job writing about this than I ever could. So uh, again, it kind of felt like a cheat. It feels like a cheat um, to write about a same topic if you're not going to do it as well or better than somebody else.
1: It's really interesting to hear how you found your uh, your niche there through, through trial and error. You mentioned that you tend to follow your interests through your blogs. What are you interested in now?
2: oh well uh it's interesting we um we talked a little bit about it before but sort before starting the podcast and i think this entire esg movement and that's it goes by a number of different names but i think is is actually quite fascinating um not just from an investment perspective from a social perspective as well and this idea that we can that investors can bring um their values broadly broadly stated to the financial markets and i think that's uh, I, I think that is going to be increasingly uh, a topic for investment, and so it may not necessarily. Um, uh, I think that's. I think that's just the nature of um, certainly of these last uh, maybe these last couple of generations that have come into the workforce and come into uh, the area of investing that 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 these topics are of interest to in them and important to them, and I think um, over time these ideas are going to become. Uh, essentially integrated into how we think about investments. And so I think that's, a, that's always um, a fascinating topic uh, to think about.
1: Uh, I would agree. And I think technology is probably going to make that easier because it allows for uh, mass customization. It allows us to give investors what they want, but at the same time be scalable. So I, I expect there'll be more, a lot more happening in that area.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of the debate about ESG investing is about whether, you know, the returns from different sorts of strategies or screens are going to provide, you know, better, you know, better returns or returns that are equal to the market. And I think that's somewhat beside the point. I think that what's interesting about ESG is that by aligning your portfolio with your worldview. It provides you the impetus to stick with that portfolio over time. And so uh, I I think that that is more of a behavioral sort of um, uh, aspect to it that's more interesting to me than the actual underlying investment uh, performance aspect.
1: I think that's a really good point because um, so much of the investment-related discussion on ESG that, that you mentioned. Um, I've seen a lot of it where the debate is really conflating several issues so for example you'll get somebody that will create a, a low carbon ESG index and then point at the performance and say it's beaten whichever market over this period and totally neglect to mention the fact that the low carbon nature means it is skewed away from industrial companies and more towards services and technology companies, and that if you adjust for the sector exposures, that explains most of the outperformance. And you get all these other issues mixed in, and it's very hard to tell whether it's the ESG or something else that's driving the result. But as you point out, that almost or probably doesn't matter at all. It's really about helping the end investor be comfortable with their portfolio so that as you say, they have the discipline to stick with their strategy.
2: No, I think that's absolutely right. And kind of, you know, you, you mentioned uh, this ability to look at factors. And I think, you know, that has been another topic, which is uh, frankly hard to ignore for anybody who has been uh, watching, uh, you know, reading the blogosphere or reading the financial media over the last couple of years this idea of. Uh, being able to look at factors and not just look at factors, but be able to invest in them in some form or fashion, you know, oftentimes through an ETF has become uh, oftentimes the way that we talk about investing now. And that granularity uh, provides us much more insight into uh, the performance of strategies and managers. And I think, you know, that has been another, another area that has been of particular interest to me over the last, uh, I'd say maybe uh, year or two.
1: Any other areas on your radar? Well, you know, I think you know,
2: I think technology, broadly stated, is um, is a fascinating one. I think you know, uh, here in the U. S. We're, you know, we talk about the fang stocks. We talk about Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and Facebook and i think it's almost hard not to talk about them i think their not only their financial impact on the markets is is a, is large but also their impact on society and uh just how we communicate is a, is a big one and i think just just following those stocks and the things and the companies and, the, and how it is that they are essentially shaping our society in some very significant ways is an important one to to stay on top of and so uh, you know, I'm talking to you uh, on Skype, which is a, a Microsoft product. I, uh, I have my Apple phone next to me and we're, you know, uh, you know we're, it's essentially they, these companies are very much baked into our daily lives. And uh, thinking about the implications of that is uh, not only interesting, but probably necessary.
1: Definitely, uh, particularly because as we're increasingly finding out, not all of the implications are good or uh, we may not fully understand their effects.
2: No, I think that's absolutely the case. I think we are, you know, we are, as as with much in the way of technological change, we are, you know, we are uh, learning, learning these lessons over time. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely the case.
1: We're living in a live experiment. Absolutely. I, I just wanted to circle back to something that you said earlier when we were talking about the beginnings of abnormal returns. You mentioned that you started out anonymously because you weren't sure uh, whether the blog would in some way limit your future career prospects. When did you decide to go, uh, to go public? When did you decide, you know what I'm comfortable now? And and what led you to that decision?
2: Well, um, it was, there was a couple of different things going on. One is once I, once I made the decision to try and, uh, you know, for those first couple of years, I, I didn't, um, you know, I was essentially, <laughs> Uh, blogging for free. There wasn't any revenue involved. And so once I decided that, uh, I was going to try and generate some revenue through the blog, whether it be through advertising or through, through other means, uh, I felt it necessary to put, uh, to put a name in the face on the blog. And so, uh, that was really the, the impetus to, um, to become a public and to essentially, for lack of a better term, uh, professionalize what I was doing. So.
1: And how do you get that balance right when you decide to add uh, revenue earning capabilities to a blog?
2: Well, I would I would love to t- I would love to tell you there's some sort of formula, but for me it's been an on you know it's been a 12 to 13 year challenge and so the nature of the nature of abnormal returns and the way that I blog is really not uh, conducive to generating revenue and so uh, whether it be through advertisements through through other means so I have tried any number of different exper- experiments on t- on how to uh, monetize the content on the blog and I have to admit that I have probably not been altogether successful and so uh, my you know my my bottom line on that is that the blog is probably has to be a part of a larger sort of uh, personal or or professional sort of portfolio it's probably in that perspective that the blog has been you know sort of most valuable for me in terms of uh, being able to meet a whole host of people and to make different sorts of connections and to expose myself to different sorts of opportunities that may not necessarily be uh, revenue generating in a sort of traditional sense but in a broader perspective has been uh, fulfilling and quite valuable to me.
1: I I couldn't agree more and I think our our conversation is a good example of that because uh, we met basically through my blogging, uh, and I've met a lot of other fantastic people through my blogging as well. Um, some of which are friends, some of which are clients. Can you give us some examples of people that you've met through your writing and work? Oh
2: wow, uh, that's that's a great question. In fact, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I've had this conversation with. Other people who are, um, active online, whether it be through the blogs or through, uh, financial Twitter. And it's always, I always get a kick out of meeting those people in person because it's, it's hard to explain to people who are not involved in, um, like I said, financial Twitter, the blogosphere for, for me to be able to call someone a friend. Uh, even though I've never actually met them in real life, but that's actually the case. And so um it's kind of a kick to be able to do that and to actually end up meeting people in real life. And so actually, you know, it's interesting because my current position today at Ridhold's Wealth Management is really a function of my, um you know, my experience in the blogosphere and, you know, the fact that I have, uh, I have essentially, you know, I have before I joined Ritholtz, um a few months ago, I essentially was familiar with, uh, you know, all of the all of the principles there because, um, you know, we'd all been blogging in some form or fashion and uh, had communicated prior to uh, ever thinking about doing anything together professionally. So, you know, I would say uh, my current position is one that is, you know, a direct result of what I've been doing online for the last decade or so.
1: I love the, the journey that you've described there. You've gone from a, a side experiment that you've kept anonymous because you've, you were uh, you're justifiably nervous that it might affect your career to actually starting a new part of your career that was 100% a result of that blog.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's f- come full circle to say the least.
1: So tell us about what you're doing at Ritholtz Wealth Management. You're director of investor education, but what does that really mean?
2: Well, um, one of the great things about um, about not only the firm, but uh, but my position at the firm is that it allows me to continue doing what I've been doing every day for, for all these many years. So I'm continuing to write um, the abnormal returns blog uh, on a daily basis and hopefully uh, close followers of the blog hopefully have have not seen anything change over the last few months. So hopefully I've been able to uh, maintain the quality and the pace of writing. And so uh, it's really uh, the director of investor education. My role is really to uh, help Amplify what existing bloggers uh, at the firm are doing and get that content out to not only our current clients, but prospective clients and to the broader world. And so, you know, at the firm, we have, you know, some of the some of the highest profile uh, people in the financial blogosphere. And so it's really kind of a pleasure to be able to work with them on a closer basis and to be able to see that process. Uh, play out over time. And so the the firm is built on this idea of communicating directly to uh, clients or potential clients or to the broader public.
1: One of the things I have noticed uh, in, in reading the material that uh, the people at Ritholtz have put out is that it's, it's very authentic. Uh, they're not shy of allowing their personality to come out. Uh, whether it's through their writing or their video or their podcasts. And it's funny because I see a lot of uh, larger mainstream financial organizations, they've they they've suddenly discovered, it seems, um, the importance of social media to reach people. And you can see that their attempts to use it have been through their legal and compliance department and they're just so sanitized and it's almost like they're treating the web as a a digital version of their monthly performance report uh, and totally missing what the internet and the interaction it allows you to have is all about. Do you have any tips or suggestions for how people can be more effective and, and any words of encouragement to other people, other bloggers out there to be themselves and why that's important?
2: Well, you know, I could not agree with you more on that statement. I would, you know, I would agree with you 100% on that. And so, you know, I think it is, I, I think you're. it's absolutely the case in what you said. And I think that authenticity is a key part of the success in anybody writing um, online. And so, you know, what I think distinguishes people who are um, good at blogging Um, is that they they are essentially writing about things that they find interesting. And sometimes those things are on topic on what's happening in the financial markets, and sometimes they're tangential, and sometimes they're wholly unrelated. But so long as they are writing about things that they're interesting, they're likely to continue to do that. And it's through that process, like you said, that you really do kind of not only build your writing muscles, but you build an audience and you build uh, essentially a voice for yourself. And so uh, that that is very much that is 180 degrees removed from, like you said, the corporate sort of perspective where, um, you know, a larger corporation or larger organization says, look, oh, we need to. We need to reach our clientele in a certain fashion, and so we're going to build backwards from that. It's, it's a completely different sort of process, and so that's why that's oftentimes why that approach uh, fails to uh, reach an audience um, in any sort of interesting way. And so, in my prior career, I have written those monthly or quarterly performance sorts of um, reports, and they are largely, you know. Frankly, they're pro forma. Nobody, nobody reads those because they're not written, um, you know, with a viewpoint or um, in an interesting fashion. And those people that do write from that sort of perspective. And so an example of that is Howard Marks, who's the, you know, who's the chairman of Oak Tree and is uh, he's out on the on the kind of the tour now promoting his most recent book. But he's essentially, you know, he's been writing uh, not, you know, he's kind of a blogger before he was a blogger. He's been writing his monthly uh, chairman reports for a long time. And he essentially has been writing about things that he's find interesting. And, and he found an audience for that and is really, um, you know, he's an example of, like I said, he's essentially been blogging um, before there were ever blogs. And he's one of those sorts of investment professionals who was able to find a voice and not in a kind of, you know, a structured, formal, uh, corporate sort of way.
1: It's interesting to hear you bring up Howard Marks. I was listening to his a recent podcast with your uh, your boss, Barry Ritholtz. And one of the things that he mentioned there was that he thought when he, he began writing his memos and books, that his audience would primarily be uh, other investment professionals and that the audience would be quite small. And what he's discovered over time is that the audience is far larger and far more mainstream than he ever would have thought. And I thought that was very interesting.
2: I think that's a function of his writing. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think another example, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche at this point, but, you know, if you think about the Warren Buffett shareholder letters, which he's been writing for, you know, going on 50 years, 50 years now, you know, he is quite frank and in those letters and writes in a approachable sort of way. and, And when he needs to admit mistakes that he's made along the way. He does so, and I think that's why people find him, uh, you know, as, billion, as multi billionaires go, quite approachable in that sort of perspective. And so I think that awesome, that authenticity is uh, kind of shines through. And I think that's another example of um, how being uh, forthright and open and transparent I think uh, reaches people in a very specific way.
1: I think there's a, a common thread through all of the people that we've discussed in that uh, whether it be the team at Ritholtz or Howard Marks at Oaktree or Warren Buffett at Berkshire, I think these people uh, and, and yourself too are able to be authentic because they're in a role where they're where they have skin in the game basically and by that, What I mean is they're effectively principles in a business where they really want that business to grow. They're they're personally and financially invested in that business. And that gives them the scope and the freedom as well to really be authentic. And I think where a lot of uh, corporate media and information falls down is that you have this large amorphous organization and the people preparing the information often don't really have ownership over what they do or skin in the game. And I think that that affects things. Do you you think that's a fair statement?
2: Oh, I think that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, the more layers that a piece of paper or a document gets passed through, uh, the less likely that, you know, all of the kind of the sharp edges are going to get uh, sanded down, and that end result is going to be, um, you know, certainly perfectly palatable from a corporate perspective, but likely is going to be dull as dishwater from a reader's perspective.
1: Very good. So, in your in your role at Ritholtz, what are some areas uh, that you're focusing on at the moment in terms of investor education?
2: Well, you know, I, like I said, I think we part of my challenge is a bit of trying to deal with um, a cornucopia of uh, great content. We have so many great writers and part of the challenge is from my perspective and part of my role is really just to highlight the best of our work and when necessary, uh, go back into our archives and bring bring forth content that might be relevant to what's happening today. So. Uh, you know, it's part of a, it's almost, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting challenge for that perspective. It's almost, um, we, uh, from that perspective, it's really trying to uh, find that content and amplify it and uh, um, bring it forth so that um, not only our, cli- our our clients can uh, get the best of it, but also a, a broader audience as well.
1: When did you think that blogging content became acceptable to use with clients and by that what I mean I'm I'm sort of casting my mind back and I'm thinking to a time when financial advisors uh, to back up their advice would produce research reports created by a bank or a research consultancy or, or whoever. When did it become okay to actually bring out a blog and say hey I think you should do this and this blog explains why?
2: Well, here here's what I think. Here's here's my hypothesis on that. I think the great financial crisis was essentially the catalyst for the phenomenon that you're discussing. Essentially, we all were um flying in the dark from, you know, the you know from 2008 through 2009. We were li- we were li- essentially living in Unprecedented in times in the financial markets and in the broader economy, and so um, what what happened during that time period was that things were moving so quickly, and like I said, we're facing such unprecedented sorts of convulsions that people started to the the sort of the mainstream media started to look at bloggers who either had Um, had first-hand experience in mortgage-backed securities or these other, you know, other sorts of or had experience in monetary economics. And I think that was really the time where people started to look at these things and say, you uh, you know, people who know what, who are, who have first-hand experience and know what they're talking about are writing about this stuff online and we have to start paying attention to it. And I think it was really that period of, Um, I mean, it certainly was a dark and dangerous sort of time for the global economy, um, but out of that came a different sort of perspective about you know, a broader use of sources and being able to look at blogs as being somewhat more authoritative.
1: I think there's also a trust element in there as well, that uh, maybe people no longer trusted the big established news sources through that process that you described.
2: Well, yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I think that's part of it. But I I think it was really one of I think everybody was trying to figure, figure it out as we went along. And I think you look for, uh, you look for whatever, you know, whatever sort of information you can. It just so happened to be that on a lot of blogs, there were people who, you know, did have some of that uh, experience and were able to provide uh, perspective that, um, you know, other sources weren't able to do or, the investment banks weren't able to do because they were in some form or fashion conflicted.
1: Mm-hmm. Very true. So in in terms of client acceptance, how do clients respond when you use blog content with them?
2: You know, the the interesting thing about, you know, Ritholtz Wealth Management is that it really the firm was really built. Um, all of the principals were blogging before they started, you know, started Uh, managing money so it's really just part and parcel of the process and I think that you know one of the great things about the clients of the firm know that there are um, you know a number of people who are uh, watching what's going on in the markets are thinking about investing and are writing it about on a daily basis they don't need to wait for a call from their advisor or to wait for the monthly or quarterly report from the firm, they know that they're, you know, whether it be on one of the blogs or on Twitter, um, you know, there are there is going to be some member of the firm that is, you know, out there talking about what's going on.
1: I, I think that's a very important point because, you know, casting my mind back to the old days, essentially financial advice was largely getting somebody to fill out a questionnaire that then was used to determine their asset allocation and after that you showed them a whole bunch of glossy mutual fund brochures and, um, and pick funds to populate that asset allocation and met with them periodically whereas what you're describing now is th- there's a very strong education element to it and it's more of a almost a conversation in some ways where you've got these people that you trust that you know are looking out for you and they're always telling you what's on their mind and in some ways that's reassuring because it helps you know that you're on track. you know
2: that, that's that's an interesting point. I have um, in my role one of the I have started writing a uh, periodic email to uh, clients of the firm that you know highlights some of our, Uh, some of our content and content from around the web. And uh, it's been well received by clients. And one of the clients wrote back and said, I don't necessarily read the entire email, but I'm just glad that you, I know that you, that there's somebody out there, you know, reading this and writing this and just knowing that I get the email makes me feel better about Uh, what's going on and so uh, I think that touches on exactly what you're saying in terms of that building that sort of relationship and there are I'm sure there are clients of the firm who have don't read any of the blogs but um, you know might feel that they are uh, if they ever feel the need to they can turn to them at at any time so
1: that's the funny thing about blogging isn't it sometimes the things that you take the most pride and joy in writing nobody reads and then the pieces that you think were quite average, <laughs> you get blown away at how many people like it.
2: It's absolutely a crapshoot. I don't, I have, that is, I that has been my experience and I think every other um, every other blogger's experience is that, you know, you might spend hours or days or weeks agonizing of, over some sort of post that you think is uh, breaking new ground and it lands with quite a thud and then something else that you've just tossed off in uh, you know, a half an hour becomes much more popular. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's very much a, uh, like I said, it's very much a crapshoot from that perspective.
1: So for all of the advisors and wealth managers out there that are hearing things along the lines of, if you're not on social media, you won't have a business. Is that overstating things? Does everybody have to blog and podcast or is it not for everybody?
2: I, I think that's absolutely the case. I think you, know, I think we, I think you mentioned the word um, earlier this year, I think you have to be authentic. And if um, doing a podcast or writing a blog is not authentic for you, then there's nothing, you know, there's nothing worse than trying to force your business or your personality into something that it isn't. And so inauthenticity is something that people see quite quickly. And um, there's no single way to communicate with your clients. Um, There are a number of different ways. And I think you have to find the way that works best for you and for your clients. And so uh, saying that you have to do uh, one thing or another, I think, is uh, far too pat of an answer.
1: Okay, we've got a couple more questions to wrap up before we let you go. Uh, So the first one's a little bit of a tough question. What were some things that you've had to learn over your career the hard way?
2: Oh, well, we touched on one of them is that, you know, when when writing for a broader audience, it's really difficult ahead of time to identify which of those topics are going to be uh, popular and which ones of them will not. And so I think you have to Uh, Sort of let go a bit of your expectations in that regard. And so uh, once you hit publish You have to feel good about what it is that you've written and realize that at that point It's largely out of your hands whether that piece is going to uh, Take off or land like a thud
1: very good and Obviously, you're an avid reader of blogs. Are there any blogs that you'd like to call out as being uh, particularly helpful? Maybe give us some of your secrets.
2: Oh, I don't know that I have. Well, uh, the 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 fact is that there aren't any secrets. Every day, uh, you know, if you come to the blog every day, you're seeing uh, you're seeing those things that I think are you know interesting and meaningful. And so, uh, you know, it might take you a full week to cycle through all of the posts. Uh, because I do do some specialized posts uh, during the week, but you know the re- you know in that sense there are no secrets There are no blogs that I have uh, Kind of squirreled away for my own for my own pleasure if I like it um, I'm going to tell the broader world about them. So
1: very good, and how about books anything that you're uh, into at the moment? You know, I'm reading I'm reading a couple of
2: books uh, right now, one is one of which is I- investing-related, and that's uh, a, a called Adaptive Markets, and it's by a professor at MIT called uh, Andrew Lowe. And so uh, it's a big book, and it's taking me a little while to work through it, but uh, I think it's an, an interesting perspective. You know, we talked about the University of Chicago earlier and this idea of efficient markets, and uh, Lowe has kind of taken – uh, some of the best of financial theory and kind of, you know, layering on top of that all of that we have learned about behavioral finance and economics, and is trying to find some, uh, for lack of a better term, a third way. And I think uh, it's been it's, a, it's an interesting book. And another book uh, that I, that I also have on my nightstand as well is by uh, Michael Pollan, who uh, uh, listeners might know as have have, have having written about uh, food, um, food topics over the last uh, decade or so, but he just wrote uh, a book called How to Change Your Mind, which uh, talks about the new science of uh, psychedelics. And uh, it's kind of a first-hand account of that. And I think it's, uh, again, that's another book that is, uh, has kind of struck my fancy as well.
1: Uh, there's a broad range in topics. Reconciling in efficient market theory with behavioral finance all the way through to the applications of psychedelics
2: yeah no it's uh well like we said the world is changing uh quite rapidly and so uh i think you know the the more we the more we learn about that the better
1: very good well tadas thank you very much for your time it's been great to chat with you and find out more about your blog and how you got there and we We hope to chat with you again soon and we hope that you continue to put out such such excellent reading material on a daily basis.
2: Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it and uh, keep up the the good work both on the blog and with the podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.